It's Monday, December 17th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Matt Greer, and joining me in studio, we have Motley Fool analyst Emily Flippin and Jason Moser. Welcome. How are we feeling this Monday? Feeling quite rested and thankfully a little bit drier now. It was very wet weekend. Oh, so much that. rain. And Emily, can you make the rain stop? I, I will do my best, although come Thursday or Friday, I think my powers might wear off. We are expected to get even more rain. Unbelievable. Hope well, nobody's already, traveling. Yeah, we've already surpassed, like, this is the wettest year on record for this area since something like 1890 or something, isn't that right? It's epic. Yeah. It was just epic. But what I, what I like about it is it gives me an excuse not to do any yard work. <laughs> <laughs> not that I needed an excuse. Okay, well, today we're going to do something a bit different. We're stepping back from the headlines, and we're going to do something that we haven't done in a while. We call it Yes, No, Maybe So. Now, here's how it works. Each of you is going to be sharing three stocks. You're going to have a Yes stock, a stock that you think will outperform the market, over the next three to five years. You have a no stock, stock you think will probably lose to the market over the next three to five years. And then the maybe stock, the stock you're kind of conflicted over, a stock that could go either way. So, on that note, let's get going. Emily, what stock are you saying yes to? I'm saying yes to Yoshin today. And that might sound unfamiliar to a lot of listeners. Uh, it's an underfollowed stock. It is spelled U-X-I-N, so the pronunciation there might be a little different than people were expecting. But it's the largest used car dealer in China. So I think they're positioned really well. They have a relatively small market cap right now, given their business. This stock was hammered earlier this year. Uh, IPO'd at $9 a share, went all the way down to something like $3 a share, and is back up close to 9 now. Um, they have a great partnership now with Taobao. They're selling a lot of cars. Granted, their losses are increasing. But I think, given the market size, given the fact that they're the largest player, and this is definitely going to be an in-demand industry when you think about the development of the Chinese economy, I mean, Yoshin is positioned really well to succeed. Okay, Jason Moser, when you hear largest used car dealer in China, is there a question there? Is there a concern? As an investor, what are you thinking? I mean, I guess I just wonder at this point in time, historically speaking, I mean, used cars have been a Huge market forever. I mean, obviously, we're making this transition to uh, electric vehicles, alternative energy vehicles. So, I guess my my question and to really any, it's not just Chinese used car companies; it's any of them. Is is how what what is the ability to incorporate those types of vehicles into their model? What kind of a threat is that trend to? You know, I'm, I'm assuming that most of their vehicles are traditional. They are uh, fuel engines. So I, you know, I mean, I, I just that that'd be my one question. I just don't know enough about it. I, I love that question because the Chinese car market is so different than the car market that we have here in the U.S. And I think it might be a misconception when you think about the development of cars in the U.S. We are moving towards clean energy electric vehicles, and that definitely is a worldwide trend. But when you look at the Chinese market, it's so heavily regulated. I mean, you couldn't sell used cars until this century. I mean, 15 years ago, you could not sell used cars across the border of China into different provinces. So, there was a huge demand, especially in lower-tier cities, to get access to used vehicles, but there were quite literally none available. So, Yuqin is completely online, and there, after these regulations passed that allowed sellers to you know, essentially move a car from one city to the next and sell it between people, it made this huge market opportunity. And there is still such a large demand for lower-income people in China, people who are moving up to that middle-class level, to get a good, cheap, used car. I think the people who are 
paying top tier for new cars, I do think that market definitely is going to go electric. And slowly, those electric cars, I imagine, will trickle down through the stream. But the issue with the infrastructure in China is that it doesn't have the support that it's needed for electric vehicles yet. Electricity is more expensive. Um, on an income basis than in the United States, and people don't have you know easy charging ports. In fact, the Chinese electric vehicle, the very popular Chinese electric vehicle car maker Neo, is quite literally replacing batteries instead of charging them, simply because it's more cost effective for them. So there's a huge difference in these types of car markets. Markets, and while there is a trend towards electric vehicles, I think Yushin, at least for the foreseeable future, is relatively insulated. And if y'all noticed how. In the U.S., at least, you don't hear the term "used car" anymore. It's all about pre-owned vehicles. I like used <laughs> car better. I don't. I don't want someone to have owned it before me, but I'm fine if they used it. White glove certified, pre-owned. <laughs> yeah, no, you're right. I mean, I think it's 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 that's marketing, right? That's that's marketing 101. Is make people feel a little bit better about what they're getting, no matter what it is. Um, I, I mean, I think to your point. That that really brings up. I think when we look at a lot of the businesses we cover, we look for competitive advantages. I mean, one of those competitive advantages could be in the form of barriers to entry. Clearly, I mean, it sounds like there was a tremendous barrier to entry for the used car market for for years and years in in China. Um, so the companies that or company that really has uh, the head start in in getting getting started in that market. I mean. That that first mover advantage in many cases can be really all you need, and it sounds like they're pretty tech savvy already as it is. Okay, oh, fingers crossed. <laughs> okay, that's U X I N Yoshin. Jason, which stock are you saying yes to? Well, Mac, you know that I love the payments space a lot, and um, I would be uh, remiss if I did not have one of those payments companies uh, here in the yes column this this week, and so I'm going to go with PayPal. Um, I've heard of them. Yeah, you've heard of them. I think we've all heard of them. It's 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 a company that has been a, a good recommendation here in the Foolish Universe. Um, it's one that I own personally, and, and and probably will continue to add to for for many years. I mean, there are a lot of reasons, but I think ultimately, you know, when when I'm looking for good long-term style holdings, I'm looking for big market opportunities with with the opportunity also to grow and and. Payments is certainly one of those spaces. I mean, when you look at it from just a a domestic perspective, you consider here forty percent of payments in the U.S. alone are still cash. Uh, globally, that's much much more. And so we talk all the time about this this move away from cash and towards mobile payments or just electronic payments in one one form or another. And PayPal is helping facilitate that in a lot of ways. And it, it, you know, it's amazing to think about. PayPal is now a bigger company by market capitalization than American Express. Um, they have now surpassed MasterCard in annual revenue. PayPal's annual revenue, trailing 12-month revenue, is more than MasterCard's, which is amazing for me to think about, because MasterCard is essentially twice as big of a company as PayPal is, and Visa is is basically three times the size. Uh, so, I think that what you've got here is a company with a lot of different ways to grow, not only PayPal, we of course know Venmo, um, that while Venmo is not profitable, they are working on uh, ways to monetize that business, and I hope they continue to do that sort of methodically, and not 
not trying to do it all at once. We know that PayPal also acquired Zoom a little while back, which is my favorite outgoing remittance company that, that just you know was gone too soon. I just like that you have a favorite outgoing remittance company. <laughs> not everyone does, but you know I think uh, that's it, a cry for help. <laughs> when you when you look at the amount of money that's going through PayPal's networks on an annual basis, it's impressive. It continues to grow. And the nicest thing I think about this market is you're not trying to pick one winner. I mean, the payment space truly is a multi-winner space, and I think PayPal is poised to be one for some time to come. Emily, what's your biggest question about PayPal? You know, I've never really taken the plunge on PayPal for for two reasons. The first being that it's a highly competitive space. Mm-hmm. That's not to say that as a consumer you can't have numerous forms of payments, but I think as the form of payment continues to grow, I have lots of options and and what I choose to pay with. And I've never needed to make a PayPal. I've never been compelled to. So as an investment, I've never taken the plunge. That's not to say that it I don't agree that it won't be a great investment over the next year, you know, two, three years. But I do think that it's a very competitive space, and that always has given me pause. And the other thing is big security concerns in the industry. I mean, PayPal is has fallen victim to that in the past. So from a consumer perspective, there's a lot of heat right now in that space. If they're not able to, you know, at least keep up the perception of great security, then that's going to maybe cause some confidence loss in their core consumer. Yeah, there's no question. Security is always going to be, I think, top of mind for most people. Uh, particularly, I think Older folks these days that are still. Why are you looking at well? And I mean, I really shouldn't necessarily look because we're closer to the same age than Emily and I are. But I I do understand taking that leap to to paying with your phone and just. I think a lot of people still had there's a comfort level there and just knowing what they're doing and paying with cash sometimes. You know, is is the ultimate form of of understanding there. So so security, I think, is always going to be top of mind. And it's interesting your point there in using PayPal and not really having to use it before because I think that was one of my bigger hangups with it for a long time. And I mean, I haven't owned PayPal for five years. I mean, I think this is a position I've really held for just a couple of years, maybe. And I, I think I maybe would use it once a year to settle up in like a fantasy football league because it was just easy, right? Um, but what we've seen quickly here with the proliferation of mobile technology is more and more uh, companies, merchants, small businesses particularly, are are using PayPal and Square and others as a way um, to settle up payments. And the one thing that really opened my eyes to this was when we took a trip to the Bahamas this past spring break. Uh, we took the girls, went for a week, hung out, uh, and, and really lived on the local economy. We weren't at like a resort. And so, consequently, we were going to restaurants and local businesses where your option was essentially to pay with cash, or in many cases, now what these merchants were doing, they would set up email addresses and use PayPal as a form of payment. Uh, and so I found myself using PayPal a lot just on that trip alone, and so it just it opened my eyes to, you know, maybe it's more than just what I was seeing uh, initially. And I guess when you look at it from a global perspective and the amount of money that is always moving around the, <laughs> the globe on a daily basis, uh, it started started to make a bit more of an impression on me. I think that is going to continue to grow, and I think that's why we're seeing companies like Square and Stripe and others uh, continue to invest so much in the space. So the addressable market bigger than Jason's fantasy football. Okay, <laughs> yeah. that's my takeaway. Okay, Emily, let's go to our no stocks here. What are you saying no to? I'm going to say no to JCPenney over the next three to five years. You and everyone. (laughs) It must be really shocking, so I won't harp on it. Uh, But I think with you know four billion in net debt, 
It's not an acquisition candidate. Uh, it's obviously been struggling in the retail space. I do say that I bring it up because I think a lot of people think that it won't exist in three to five years. I think I fall on the side of the fence that it will exist. I think JCPenney as a company will exist in three to five years. I don't think it's turning into Sears necessarily. I will say that if they're able to work out their inventory issues, it's a strong free cash flow business. So they could theoretically downsize enough to keep operating at a level that would allow them to do so sustainably if they, you know, worked out some of these organizational issues. And with the new CEO, that could be a real possibility. Do I think it's going to be a market beater? Of course not. Um, so that's why I'm choosing it for my no category. But I do think it will be here. Jason? Well, I think, I mean, if we've seen anything, I mean, Sears has defied all logic, right? <laughs> wow. So, I mean, if Sears is still around, I think JCPenney absolutely could still be around. And, and, and honestly, while I don't know that the brand carries as much with with folks today as it did perhaps when we were growing up, I can't help but wonder if maybe there's not some kind of partnership opportunity out there. I mean, whether it's with Amazon trying to get more into the the clothing space or whatever concept is out there, perhaps there is some value in that geographical footprint, right? That real estate where they have those physical locations. I mean, I think if anything, what we've seen in 2018, one of the stories of the year has certainly been that. Well, I mean. Physical retail isn't exactly dead, right? I mean, yeah. it's still alive and doing very well in some cases. And I just I wonder if there's some partnership opportunities. How about Target there. acquiring JCPenney? Because yeah, I mean, more and more you're seeing Targets in malls as well. I would love that if Target acquired JCPenney and just replaced up the JCPenney with more Targets. <laughs> yes, I think that's right. I like that. Okay, Jason, what do you say no to? So, I, I'm going to say no to Zillow. And this is one, wow. you know, I, I really used to, I really used to think, a lot of this business, and I felt like there was more potential than what they've exploited to date. Um, I think that when we talk about large and growing market opportunities, obviously the real estate market here domestically alone is just tremendous. Do you have um, a estimate for that? <laughs> well, let me see here. <laughs> let me get back to you on that. Uh, I, I do think that they have. They've not done a very good job of taking this business beyond what it ultimately still is today, which is basically just real estate advertising. I think that, to me, hands down, I mean, this is coming from someone who's done some 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 uh, house searching here recently. I mean, I think they do have the best experience out there as far as like going onto an app on your phone and looking at different properties. The problem is taking the relationship from that point forward. You know what we ultimately did when we were selling a home and buying a home was was connecting with a real estate agent that we already knew, and then we would get our information from their internal platform, which was based on the MLS. You know, didn't really mess with Zillow at all, and so now uh, you know, we're reading Zillow's most recent quarterly report, and in this this statement just really took me back because. They noted that they are getting ready to enter a period of transformational uh, disruption. I mean, it's something to the extent where they feel like they're in the middle of now this this transformation for the business. And, and to me, the business was founded really on this disruption to begin with. And so now that they're having to disrupt again, I I can't help but wonder if they feel like maybe. They were they were not investing their dollars in the wisest fashion up to this point. So is that a euphemism when you say transformational disruption? That can be exciting. I'm it like, can wow. Be. Or that can be a wink, wink. Our business models not very good. Well, and I mean, I think that to your point there on on the latter, I think that's a reasonable one to at least wonder because, I mean, it's still not profitable. 
Okay, it, it's not like they're out there lighting the world on fire with profits. I mean, it, the stock the stock price today is is taking a very big leap of faith that they're going to make the the these wise bets in the future. And and if if you look at their balance sheet today, I mean, half of their total assets consists of goodwill. Which essentially means that they've been relying on this acquisition strategy to date uh, in order to grow. I think they're going to have to make acquisitions in the future to grow. And this latest foray into the instant offers thing, where they're ultimately basically just trying to flip homes, I don't think they have any competitive advantage in doing that. As a matter of fact, they may not even be really that good at it, right? I mean, that's not like a new market. I mean, there are people out there doing that all the time. So just, I feel like they just they do not have their eye on the ball. And um, to me, the stock price today still doesn't make any sense for a business that is not yet. Demonstrated any meaningful path to profitability, Emily. And this is a stock that's dependent on the housing market, right? Yeah. And we've had a great kind of run up the past four or five years in our housing market, and the you know the company's still not profitable. Yeah. So if you can't succeed in conditions where the housing market is expanding like it has been, it begs the question of what makes this stock, what makes this company, a winning company in the future. Um, and and to me, you know, the concern being that any downturn would make an already unprofitable company that much more concerning from an investing perspective. Yeah, and I feel like we were asking that question five years ago when this company really was on the radar. I mean, the the, the statement that they opened that letter with says Zillow Group has entered a period of transformational innovation. I mean, that's what I thought they were doing five years ago. <laughs> I like and that. Now they're saying they're just phrase. doing it now, which to me, I, I just I. It brings up more questions than than I feel like there are answers for, and so I, I don't think this is a bad company, right? I just I, I don't I don't know that they're necessarily focusing on what really matters, and I'm I'm very suspect as to the actual opportunity that they're trying to capitalize. On. Okay, so you are lowering your estimate for Zillow. That is a fair <laughs> assumption. Okay, so let's move on to our maybe stocks. I think this may be my favorite part of this show because these are stocks that we're conflicted over. We don't quite know. We may be ambivalent about um, Emily how about a stock that you can't quite decide? This might take some listeners as a surprise because I have been quite the bear on this stock for a while. But Stitch Fix, um, you know, for a long time, Stitch Fix, in my opinion, was priced for you know the idea that the entire market was going towards box closed delivery, and I was just convinced there's no way that this many people have this much disposable income and willingness to spend this much on their clothes and get this amount every single month. It just didn't make sense to me. But we've seen recently, thanks to slower than expected customer acquisition growth, that the stock's been really destroyed. So it just it left me wondering, and I don't have an answer for this, but it left me wondering at what price is Stitch Fix a good buy to me? Because in my opinion, they don't have to take over the market like some people expect they do. They don't have to be Blue Apron like some people expect they do. They can have a small but loyal base of customers that spend a lot on their clothes and continue to be profitable in that direction over the long term. So, I, I'm still not pushing myself to buy any of this stock because I find myself so conflicted because it does feel like it's either going to succeed or fail. But at some point, I guess the price could be right. 
Okay, so you mentioned their loyal base of customers. I know this will shock you. I'm not one of them. I think it's fair to say I'm probably not known for my fashion. Um, Is that fair, Jason? You've known me for a while. I would say that you and I together probably have about the fashion sense of my dog. Okay, that's good. So you're that's probably not that's probably not fair to your dog. (laughs) Okay, but you mentioned loyal base, and we were talking with our very own Dan Boyd before the show. Dan is a Stitch Fix customer. So Dan, sell me on Stitch Fix. Oh man, uh, it's real easy. It's real easy. When you sign up for Stitch Fix, you don't have to go shopping anymore. And I don't know about you, Mac, but I hate going clothes shopping. I would rather spend my time doing just about anything else. Yeah. So for me, Stitch Fix is a great opportunity to avoid having to go into a store, deal with a parking lot, deal with other drivers on the road, deal with trying on clothes in a uh, one of those little booths, the changing rooms, all that stuff. I, I I hate all of it. So Stitch Fix comes to your house. You try on the clothes in so your house. So hold on, they come to your house. What? How does this work? And, I, and do I have to like take measurements? And and that seems yeah, like a you, lot of well, work. Well, you probably know what size clothes you wear normally, right? Uh, you have a general idea. I, mean, I know the Costco sizes. Okay, well, <laughs> if you have the general idea when you sign up, you fill out like a questionnaire on their website of like you know what sizes you are, and then they'll send handsome, you handsome, very handsome, very handsome is where you want to go certainly, but they send you stuff, and then you can fine tune it as you uh, as you get more stuff. And they send me a box a month of five items a month, and I uh, last month I didn't. Pick any because I didn't like any of them, uh, but the month before I think I had I picked like four out of the five. So See, that is yeah. that is so impressive. And but do, I mean, does... do you get comments? Do people say, "Wow, that's a really nice shirt"? Well, my fiance is a huge fan of this because it means that once a month there's like a little fashion show, a Dan Boyd fashion show going on in yeah. our apartment. <laughs> which uh, and she and she like because again, I don't really like going clothes shopping. So you know, if this is really the only source of new clothes. That you know, then it's the only fun she gets as far as like picking out clothes and stuff. For but me. here's the question: So does Stitch Fix allow you to exploit your sartorial nature, or are you really just fitting your wardrobe to whatever Stitch Fix sends you? Like, I mean, do you really? Like, if you're like me, you probably don't care a whole heck of a lot at this point about what you're wearing. I mean. I don't. I don't profess to have any real style whatsoever. Is it? Is it transformational? So I don't know. I don't know what sartorial means, <laughs> but I'm going to take it as disrespect. No, no, no. no, no, no. Uh, it basically, just means that you you have you have good style. You, you're you're into fashion, and you you've got good taste. Well, don't let's not let's not. Let's not speak. Talk me up too much. I'm wearing a t-shirt and jeans at work right now. It's it, to me. It's more of a convenience thing. Is okay. is the whole thing? I you know I I I just don't like going shopping. And gotcha. If I can avoid it, it's great. And the prices aren't like wild for Stitch Fix. Like you go to Joseph A. Bank or you go to Nordstrom's or anything. They're having a sale this weekend. Joseph A. Bank does <laughs> crazy amount of sales, but a lot of the times their shirts are going to be a hundred hundred dollar shirts. And that's just way too much for 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 me, especially with these name brands. Well, yeah. you're so. getting a name brand though. If you pay a hundred dollars for a shirt, you're getting a name brand. For me, the hang up with Stitch Fix is there's somebody out there who's paying sixty dollars for a shirt that has no name brand. You don't know the quality of, and you're doing it repeatedly over the months. I mean, the great thing about Nordstrom's and Joseph A's banks is, yeah, they're expensive, but you know what you're getting. I mean, that's a good point, but. For me personally, I just don't really care about the brand. Mm-hmm. If yeah. the shirt looks nice, I'll buy the shirt. If it's not, you know, unreasonably priced. 
Okay. Well, I think that's pretty compelling. I'm intrigued. I don't know if I'm going to do Stitch Fix because I had a bad experience with Blue Apron. And <laughs> as you mentioned earlier, Emily, I kind of lumped them together. It's not fair. I know food, apparel, and all that. But... Honey, I don't think these pants are quite done. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Jason. It's your maybe stock. What yeah. are you going with? All right. I'm going to probably respond to an email or two in regard to this one. So I'm maybe opening myself up. But Apple, I know people will probably say, what? Blasphemy. Um, but yeah, you know, I've been sitting here all year trying to figure out Apple is not a stock I personally own. And it's one that I've always kind of wished I did, but I never bought it. And now, this year, it's starting to strike me that perhaps there's an opportunity opening up. But is it an opportunity, really, Mac? I don't know. And I mean, and that's why it's my maybe. I think when you look at the way the company has gotten to where it is today, clearly the iPhone has has been what has really led the way. I think that they have more or less hit a wall with what they can do with phones. And I say this. With you know a new iPhone 10R in my pocket, I mean I like Quit it okay. Bragging. I like it okay. Listen, I'm not bragging okay. <laughs> I like it all right, but I'm going to tell you, I made the leap from the iPhone 6 to the 10R, and by far and away the best thing about it is the fact that I have a phone that can now make it through the entire day on one charge. Yeah. Everything else is just incremental, and in some cases, the user experience actually is worse. I think the Apple Pay experience is not as good. I'm not really the biggest fan of the Face ID, and I think that the bigger screen actually makes it a little bit more difficult to maneuver because you got to get your thumb lower down on the screen there. And I mean, I mean, I. I'm not saying you should be texting or searching your phone while you're driving, but no matter where you are, if you're trying to one-hand it, it's a little bit different than it, than it used to so be. So, what's the opportunity? So, I that think the opportunity, and I'm glad you asked that question because that is really uh, this is where you got to weigh the two, right? I think that Apple is making the a good move in trying to become more of a services business. And, and Tim Cook on the most recent call, you're really talking more about that. And while the, the market wanted to focus on the fact that they're not going to be reporting unit units sold anymore when it comes to phones and iPads and computers, they're going to tell uh, us a little bit more about how the service business is uh, growing in, in not only the revenue that it's bringing in, but the cost of that revenue. And right, so we're talking about services and all that stuff that's going through the app store and music and video and whatnot. I like Tim Cook as a leader. I appreciate his his uh, belief and focus on privacy and really on the consumer. I trust him. Um, I, I think the move to service, like I said, is good. I agree with their wearable strategy and not trying to hit bet it all on one thing like the watch, but rather have a portfolio of, of, of wearables that works, like the, the, the ear pods and the watch and whatever else they come up with. But to me, is it enough to make up for what is going to be now this, this slowing down and, and almost stagnant iPhone? Because I don't know that they're going to be able to witness the same kind of pricing power that they did in the past. So, you know, you've got one thing playing against the other. It's, it's clearly a business that's not going anywhere. I love the company, I love my iPhone. I'm just wondering, is this a market beater over the next three to five years? You know, my daughters have owned the stock since 2013. It's about 150% winner for them, outpacing the market a little bit. I don't know if the next five years hold that same good fortune, and I'm still noodling over it. I'll just add that, in my experience, a lot of time consumer preference and consumer experience doesn't correlate with consumer actions. I, I think a great example of that is EA. You know, when they start adding microtransactions to a lot of their games, and gamers were so upset, you know, boycott EA. They're, and then what happens? Microtransaction <laughs> revenue goes through the roof. And so 
to an extent, the the negative things you were talking about with your new iPhone 10R, mm-hmm. is it? Um, it's yeah, maybe consumers don't like having to reach further down. Maybe they don't necessarily like all the functionality of it. But ultimately, you still bought one, right? Sure. And when you get your next phone, would you say that you're probably going to buy an iPhone in the future too? Uh, yeah, most likely. And that's they've they've I think got me in on the the uh, the phone ecosystem probably until the day I die because I'm just too lazy to try mm-hmm. and learn a new one. But <laughs> so I would argue that well, I'm not sure if they reached the peak of their ability to develop the iPhone. They don't need to. Well, yeah, and I mean, I don't. It's not iPhone specific. I mean, so I think the smartphone in general probably has kind of hit a wall. Um, and, and, and you know, remembering globally that that Android is still the dominant the dominant operating system, so you do have that to think about as well. And, and I like the fact that uh, Apple is reaching out and partnering with companies like Amazon to offer their music platform uh, over their Echo devices and everything. So I mean, it's it's that's why it's one that's that's weighing on my mind because I feel like the good outweighs the questions. But by the same token, is that money better off somewhere else? I just don't know yet. Okay, well, we will see. Just to recap here, Emily, your yes stock was Yoshin, UXIN, your no stock was JCPenney, and the maybe stock was Stitch Fix. And Jason, your yes stock was PayPal, your no stock was Zillow, and your maybe stock was a little company called Apple. That is correct. Emily and Jason, thanks for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. As always, people on the show may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So, don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Matt Greer. Thanks for listening, and we will see you tomorrow.
Merry Christmas.